Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast, the first July edition of Food Focus with Trent and Leighton Kling coming up on this show, we'll talk a little Korean fast casual. We'll also discuss ups and downs in the peach production industry, of all things. But leading our show, Spice and Seasoning Company, McCormick, reports their second quarter earnings for this fiscal year. This edition of the Food Focus podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and ThirdWaveWater.com. If you ever wonder why the coffee you get at a coffee shop doesn't taste the same as the coffee you get at home. It tastes a little bit better. Well, Third Wave Water has the secret, and you can begin brewing better coffee today for just 10 cents per cup. Use the promo code FOCUS on thirdwavewater.com for 10% off your first order. McCormick beat on both profit and sales, and this is the first time we've covered the company on the Food Focus, despite, Leighton, the fact that they're one of the oldest American companies in the entire food industry. So with McCormick, you have a self-proclaimed global leader in flavor. And earlier last week, they reported their second quarter results. And McCormick has some of the highest selling global brands in their portfolio. And just to name a few that our listeners may be aware of, Keen's Curry, Keen's Mustard, Clubhouse Spices, Lawry's, Old Bay Seasoning, Schwartz Grill Mates, Simply Asia, and of course, their own McCormick brand, among others. Overall, the company has over 250 brands and sub-brands, and we see on their website, their first tagline is actually saying, saving your world from boring food. So an interesting company message there, an interesting mission statement from the company. And under the About Company tab on the website, the company says they're on a global quest for flavor, and they are accomplishing this through three different areas, creativity, endless excitement and a fascinating food vision and in fact they're trying to have a large testing program throughout the u.s canada and the uk wherever they do business they always run taste tests monday through friday all day so they're very bullish on the idea of innovation trying to bring something new to market make food fun for everybody families major food industry every large player and you can see the company really has grown throughout their very large and storied history. Participants in the taste test can actually do it once a quarter. It's a very large program. If you go to their website, you can actually sign up. There is an application process. But the company, to put it in perspective, recorded last year record revenue from fiscal 2016 as it climbed in total 3% to $4.4 billion dollars. It's a Fortune 1000 company with roots dating back to 1889. They're now headquartered in Spark, Maryland, originally in Baltimore proper. And their founder, Willoughby McCormick, started the business at 25 years of age, a very young man selling spices, root beer, and juices door to door. So looking through their history, you could see that they actually started out doing what they're doing now, selling spices, seasoning, juice blends those types of things. The company was bought and sold many times through a series of different transactions. And as you'll talk about a little bit later, Trent, after the founder's death in 1932, they've acquired several global brands over the last three decades. 
and you could see just their massive reach inside the United States and globally through all of these transactions. You mentioned their transactions. They have six acquisitions since the beginning of 2015 alone, and that's helped to build them up to a $12.4 billion market cap on the New York Stock Exchange. Their IPO actually took place in 1978. So let's take a look at these second quarter earnings now that Layton's provided some background about McCormick as a company. This is for the period ending May 31st. Their top line sales rose 5%, which outpaced the sales growth that they saw in fiscal 2016 during the full year, as Layton mentioned, a 3% number. And it builds off a first quarter that saw a 4% increase in top line revenue on a constant currency basis. That term is going to be important because they have so many international holdings that they attempt to use the constant currency basis to even things out for better comparison across quarters. Their top line sales came in specifically at $1.11 billion. Now, by 2019, they mentioned in their annual investor day presentation in April, they want about $5 billion in top line revenue per year. This increase in the second quarter puts them on track certainly to achieve that by 2019 if they continue to see this year-over-year growth. Now, their sales are a function of two main segments. That's something Leighton alluded to earlier. They have the consumer segment, which is the retail segment. So if you go into a grocery store, a Walmart, a Kroger, what have you, you see one of these brands, that's their retail segment. But they also have the industrial segment, which deals with food service. So if you're a food service establishment, whether that's a QSR or an FSR or something in between, Anywhere in there, McCormick also deals with food service distributors. So they have two different portions of their company, and both are seeing success, especially domestically. When we look back to the end of 2016, the company guided for a percentage change in net sales in 2017 between 3 to 5%. However, they revised this guidance a little bit during that investor day, saying they look for an annual growth rate on a constant currency basis, of course, between 4 to 6% between now and 2019, so including three total fiscal years. Not only, though, did the company grow sales in this last quarter, profit also grew for the company by about $7 million versus last year's figures. And part of that is a product of some of these companies that they have acquired in that time. Net income came in at exactly $100 million, or $0.79 per share. This beat analyst average estimates of $0.77 per share. They made $0.73 per share for the second quarter of 2016, so an increase over last year's number and also beating analyst estimates on their net income. And largely, this was due to sales in the Americas and domestically. Sales in the Americas as a whole increased approximately 5% in consumer and 7.8% in the industrial segment. EMEA, which is basically a sector that includes Europe and Africa as well, declined 9% year over year. This was their only falling market. However, when you look at it on a constant currency basis, it is just a decline of 4.8%. Again, with the international dealings here, the constant currency is important. This is coming off a divestment in South Africa due to shrinking margins. It's one of the reasons for the declining sales in that market. But To me, it is interesting because sales in this industrial division last quarter were up 
13%. That would be their first quarter on a constant currency basis due to their acquisition of Giotti. Giotti was acquired for $127 million that was finalized in early 2017, and that really helped to chip in in this division in the first quarter. Not so much we're seeing in the second quarter, at least not enough to overcome their divestment in South Africa. Now, in case you're wondering, Giotti is Italian. They feature flavorings, juice concentrates, and extracts. The juice concentrates kind of go back to the start of the company as far as McCormick is concerned. Asia was solid, much like the Americas in terms of their division. So as we look at some of America's strengths that McCormick is seeing and how McCormick is trying to capitalize on increased mergers and acquisitions, management said they are trying to shift to more value-added products. So not only herbs and spices that people are familiar with, but trying to branch out a little bit. And part of this is being done through their mergers and acquisitions that we've talked about with six acquisitions in the last two and a half years. And they also, during their Investor Day presentation, mentioned deals that are in the pipeline as well. So they are not done in terms of expanding by acquisition. They're looking for acquisitions, as they say, that are at the intersection of flavor and health. And this seems very buzzwordy, certainly, but we can see this in Gourmet Gardens, which was one of their acquisitions last year. Gourmet Gardens appeals to the better-for-you customer, if you will, but they sell largely herb pastes, which will keep for three months in the refrigerator. You can get them usually at a grocery store in the refrigerated section. And also lightly dried herbs. So the herbs are dried just enough to kind of shelf-stabilize them, but not over-dried like you would see in your traditional spice section. And we're talking about things like, for example, ginger and chili peppers in this segment. It helps to stretch out the overall offering that McCormick has. And what's more is... By picking up a company that's in this space, they're not cannibalizing any other companies in their portfolio. And more importantly, when you pick up a company that's in the value-added sector like this, anyone that's in food service, anyone that's in prepackaged foods will tell you the more value-added products you can bring on board, the higher pricing and volume and product assortment you get as a company. It's basically simple economics is the company can really leverage their size now and all of the different brands and all of the different categories they have to try to have that higher pricing towards the consumer. But you see that overall the volume and product assortment is really what differentiates this company because if they see something on the market that looks attractive that has a lot of consumer momentum behind it. They are not unwilling to pull the trigger on that particular acquisition. But you can see the volume increases were brought forth by investment in a widened distribution network. This is something a lot of media outlets spoke of, talking about their large supply chain and the efficiencies they're building out within that supply chain. The company, in fact, has talked a lot about cost cutting over the past year. If you go back and look through their previous earnings reports, they're seeing an increase in demand for seasoning and spices again in the retail segment in the United States. So as you see that demand start to increase, that overall trend, you're going to see increased distribution efficiencies throughout the United States. And they said they've actually experienced softness recently, but it's really not the case when you look at the larger numbers. Obviously, grocery deflation is hurt. But overall, for suppliers like McCormick, it really hasn't hurt their bottom line, as we can see here, growing out their profit. They said no matter the changes in consumer behavior, they can adapt quickly. They said this is one of their previous goals 
and their current goals in order to adapt to the changing consumer dynamic. They've positioned their whole business in such a way that they can quickly react, either it be through the acquisitions that you've discussed, Trent, or through just changing their business model and business practices. For instance, implementing new labeling, new practices within the actual products themselves to make themselves appear a little bit better towards the consumer on that store shelf. That's obviously the most important thing here for a consumer company like this. The U.S. Gourmet line, in fact, switched last year to organic as a for instance here and growing market share in recipe mixtures, marinades and broths, new products in liquid categories, including McCormick, simply better gravy mixes were mentioned during this last earnings call and then seasonal offerings as well, trying to really take advantage of those consumers that are willing to spend a few extra dollars when it counts towards the end of the year or whenever holidays pop up throughout the year. They don't have artificial ingredients in some MSG, and now they're labeling gluten-free products as well, even BPA-free packaging with both chicken broth and other types of broth. So I found that extremely fascinating and that that really is a direct response to the consumers wanting these things listed on the ingredients. Transparency is number one, whether it's seasoning or the whole food products we've often talked about on this podcast this type of transparency is extremely important for the consumer and something you and I are now taking into concern when shopping at our local grocery store. Overall, they are optimistic for the rest of the year's operations. They're looking forward to very solid results in all markets. So we're talking globally here and also looking towards private label growth. We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast here, their private label McCormick brand that has a lot better margins than their other brands and they're looking at stronger consumer messaging. I talked about labeling a little bit, really trying to make it clear to the consumer what is in their product and this will help with brand awareness in the long run. Overall, from the publicly traded perspective, we see the shares of the company did dip about 3.5% from $98 a share to around 96 after they reported earnings. They have, however, rebounded slightly since the end of last week to now around $97 a share. Their price to earnings ratio is still fairly healthy and I think it's a function of that increasing business, the overall size of the acquisitions and the idea that they are not opposed to growing via acquisition. The price to earnings ratio is sitting around 25 currently. We move into the beverage industry in an effort to differentiate craft beer from either craft beer lookalikes or craft brands owned by macro brewers. The Brewers Association in the U.S. announces a new seal to appear on true craft beer going forward. This comes as major brewing companies are either acquiring small independent craft brewers, not unlike McCormick acquiring companies in the first story, or they're putting out their own attempts at craft beer to gain traction in the growing market. And first, I think it's important, Layton, to kind of, as we look at this seal, define the problem that this seal from the Brewers Association tends to fix. First, I'd like to say thank you, Trent, for doing a lot of the research with this story. Oftentimes, I don't know if a lot of people realize it, but we do try to do some deep research into some of these stories. And Trent, this is one that was very interesting to me because we've talked about alcoholic beverages on this show before and craft breweries, especially a company like Boston Beer that's publicly traded very large. But this is an interesting problem for a lot of small brewers here. We see for craft brewers, the issue is really the popularity of craft beer itself. As craft beer continued to surge in market share over the last 20 years, major brands 
have taken notice and did one of three things. They've really come into the market and they've either acquired the specialty breweries, as in the case of Goose Island, which was actually acquired by Anheuser-Busch InBev in 2011, or two, they started their own craft extensions, or three, they ended up spinning off an entirely separate craft brewery. And you see, as with all three options, more mature companies would have the capital to impose their will. So some of the larger companies were actually having their hands in all three options. But some companies in particular, Molson Coors, got an early start on this trend. Blue Moon, for example, was launched under Molson Coors in 1995. And at that time, there were 794 craft breweries in the U.S. Now, as recent as 2016, that number was closer to around 4,200. Molson Coors long ago purchased rights to Killian's Irish Red. They've cited brand strength that has led them to more marketing dollars in this category too. And in fact, in a statement in 2016, they said they understand that the market is maturing, but they are still seeing some growth. And that is why they're putting marketing dollars towards television advertisements. Current examples of craft beer attempts by the Giants are plentiful. Shock Top was an attempt by Anheuser-Busch to capture market share away from Blue Moon, for instance. Molson Coors issued a brand called Third Shift earlier this decade, their own attempt at an amber. More plentiful examples are abound when you see the buyouts by major companies. And many thanks to the Pour My Beer blog for these examples. Magic Hat and Pyramid were bought out by North American breweries. Kugel was bought out by SAB Miller. Red Hook was partially bought out by AB InBev. Recently, Breckenridge Brewery was also bought out by Anheuser-Busch InBev. Lagunitas was partially bought out by Heineken International. And Trent, if you look at the seal and the purpose of the seal, this is an attempt by small to mid-sized craft brewers to really try to adjust their frame for the consumer to try to appeal to the consumer by saying, we are not the big industry. And so could you talk a little bit about what their mission is with this particular seal? Well, I think in order to talk about their mission, we have to talk about who the Brewers Association is because it sounds kind of like an abstract concept. But the Brewers Association is a 501c6 not-for-profit trade organization. And basically, their membership is made up from small to mid-size, mostly independent brewers. And when I say mostly independent, we'll get into ownership requirements and that type of thing a little bit later. As of this year, they boast a membership over 3,800 breweries. They exist primarily, they say, at least, to promote innovation, transparency, and education amongst traditional grassroots operations. Now let's take a look at some of these thresholds. In order to be considered craft by the Brewers Association, a company brews no more than 6 million barrels of beer total per year. And this is as a brewery, so this means all varieties put together for a diverse brand like Boston Beer Company, they actually get really close to that 6 million barrel threshold, not over it as of yet. Only 25% or less of their ownership group can be made up by a non-craft company. So let's say I have a craft brewery. As long as 20% of my company is owned by Molson Coors, I'm in the clear. If 30% of my company is owned by Molson Coors, then I'm in trouble and I wouldn't be able to qualify myself as a craft brewery. As long as brewers meet both of these two requirements, the below 6 million barrels of beer per year requirement and the ownership requirement, they can actually use the seal for free on their packaging. There are, of course, hidden costs for the individual breweries as they'll have to redesign packaging to include this seal 
on it. And since packaging for cans or, or labels for bottles, six packs, cases, and so forth is often ordered months or even in some breweries cases years in advance, it might be a while before all eligible beers end up with the seal on their packaging. You're looking probably at a growth pattern of two to three years for the seal to be fully included on a lot of these craft beers. The seal, for what it is worth, it looks like an upside-down bottle with the words Certified Independent Craft on it. Already 800 of the more than 5,000 estimated eligible breweries have applied to use the seal just in the short amount of time the Brewers Association has had the application on their website, which strikes back a couple of days. Possible consequences of this now going forward, and, and this is where some of that research comes into play. I saw the six million barrel limit, and I thought, you know, certainly a brewery like Sierra Nevada or Sam Adams had to be fairly close to that six million barrel limit. After all, basically what I would be concerned this would do would punish craft brewers that have actually become too popular and brew too much beer because they have such a large market share. However, when I did some research into this, according to that Brewers Association, 25 million barrels of beer were sold by the true craft industry in 2015. So 6 million barrels would actually reflect well over 20% of market share. And that's not a number that we're really close to seeing any brewer other than Boston Beer Company get over Assuming, though, the industry doesn't explode again in the next 20 years after seeing some leveling of growth currently, basically what we're saying there is if suddenly the market increases to 50 million barrels of beer per year sold by the craft brewing industry overall, 6 million barrels reflects a much smaller market share than the current market share that is required to be part of this program. If you're wondering about current craft market share overall in the U.S., it's about 20% of the $107 billion U.S. beer market. Growth in the craft industry specifically was down to 6% last year, which is why I said unless we see another pop in growth, you're probably not going to see anyone increase over this threshold anytime soon. I do think, though, that this number is a temporary plateau, and as more come of age, legal drinking age, around craft beer and around the craft beer culture, these numbers will continue to increase as craft beer eats into macro-brewed beer's market share. The Pour My Beer System blog notes that even Boston Beer and Sierra Nevada haven't hit or are even close to hitting the 6 million barrel threshold and certainly with the sales numbers that we're seeing from Sierra Nevada, that's not necessarily a worry in the short term. But there are other possible consequences, too. Some brewers will be unable to use the label because even though they aren't wholly owned by a larger company, they are at least partially owned by a larger company. Kona, Elysium Brewery, and Widmer Brothers all have macro ownership above the 25% mark. So those breweries, even though they still pride themselves on brewing in smaller batches and that type of thing, won't be able to use this seal. Some that aren't eligible suggest that eliminating the craft beer facade from macro-owned companies may actually hurt the beer industry as a whole. CNBC actually interviewed Andy Ingram, who owns a brewery that was bought out by Anheuser-Busch in 2015. It's Four Peaks Brewing in Tempe, Arizona. He said he's most worried about the challenges posed by wine and spirits in particular, and he feels like the Brewers Association is being somewhat short-sighted in focusing on a seal for independent 
craft breweries. Granted, his brewery also probably stands the most to lose here if he's not able to use the seal on his products. One of the other things that came up in this CNBC article is that other craft brewers aren't that interested in this seal. They want instead increased accountability for craft brewers like date coating on packaging, for example. Our personal takeaway, though, I think this label will almost certainly be valued by a lot of craft consumers, if for no other reason than to avoid a purchase of a new brand that appears craft but is not, and because of that is significantly lacking in quality. It's not going to change my personal beer buying habits. One of my favorite breweries is Boulevard. They wouldn't be eligible for this program since they're owned by Duvel, which also owns Brewery Omegang in New York and Firestone Walker among a few other breweries, but I plan on still buying that product. I don't think it's intended for people to get very snobbish about the beer they buy. I do think it's intended to keep consumers from being tricked by some of these products like Shock Top several years ago when it came out, like Third Shift, like Colorado Native, which is a Coors spinoff, that appear craft when placed on the shelf they have an attractive price point, but in reality, they're macro brewed like a lot of the other beer that those particular consumers are trying to avoid. Two things I wanted to mention before we move on is the fact that this label is extremely important because it helps to differentiate from those bigger brands like we've said. But it's important if you think about it as a business proposition, if you're a small brewer or a small to mid-sized brewer, what this seal does is really helps to ensure that your customers know who you are. But the number one goal here is to try to get this message out and the seal will help to do that, but only if marketed correctly and widely. You see with the non-GMO project, they're actually a 501c3 nonprofit organization as well. They've existed for quite some time, Trent, but have really only come to prominence with their recent seal, the non-GMO project seal that is now so ubiquitous out there in the United States. And so you see that that label actually only began in 2012. And to put that in perspective, it's on nearly 40,000 products now that are now verified. And so you can see how something like this has become very important for the consumer. I, in fact, look at that particular label. The second quick thing I wanted to mention is this is really just a basic function of business operations. Anytime you have an up and coming business or a business model like the craft brewing industry, you're viewed as a disruptor to the industry. But in this case, the more mature players were making billions of dollars per year. And thanks to their size and their breadth throughout the United States and globally, you're seeing that they're not afraid to capture this market share and to try to take back what they think was theirs to begin with. So you see this seal is really important in a multitude of ways. But going back to my first point, they will have to be able to promote this in such a way that the consumers are aware of what the seal actually is. And they're going to have to take those initial steps to start labeling all of their bottles appropriately. To the listeners of the Food Focus podcast, if you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite gets up to that same level as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop, let me let you in on the secret. Coffee shops spend thousands of dollars conditioning their water to brew the perfect cup of coffee. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, you can duplicate that exact thing at home. That's right. Third Wave Water has a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for coffee brewing magic. 
Recently at the U.S. Brewers Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. That's Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off. We delve into the QSR space and news from the Fast Casual Restaurant BB Bop Asian Grill as they aim to increase their store count rapidly over the next three months. And a little bit about the chain. They were founded in Ohio in August of 2013. The last time we discussed BB Bop was in March as they entered into a deal with Chipotle to acquire Shop House. Shop House having been wholly owned by Chipotle, a wholly owned subsidiary like Pizzeria Locale and Tasty Made Burger Chain. The Shop House locations all closed on March 17th of this year. The oldest location was only six years old. The 15 shop house locations were located in D.C., Chicago, and two locations in L.A. This eased the transition for Chipotle as they reportedly did, in fact, get a break on the lease agreements. This is something we were really talking about when this story broke was whether or not they were going to have to pay those exorbitant lease-breaking fees that are oftentimes associated with commercial real estate. Beyond helping Chipotle's short-term financials, this also helped the landlord secure another long-term tenant in BB Bop. And this is looking to be something exciting and a very open opportunity for management at that establishment. Gosh Enterprises, the parent company of BB Bop, is opening 14 new locations in its latest growth push. 13 of these are the old shop house conversions. And you see that overall, this is extending far beyond what they were originally predicting. If you go back to the company's financials about two years ago, they are privately held, but they're looking at major metropolitan areas in which to expand. And unlike other growing fast casual restaurants, they aren't targeting a specific area of the country. They're just trying to take advantage of opportunities when they see it. Cleveland and Chicago locations are going to be more in their traditional backyard, but they are now going to be in Los Angeles and the Washington, D.C. markets, which are very vast, and they have a lot of competition. A lot of new concepts come from the L.A. area. Seven locations in Washington, D.C. metro alone, four in Maryland, and three in D.C. all opened in June of this year. Two Chicago locations are four more shop houses, and two of the L.A. locations will be opened in this month, July 5th and July 24th. And they are in very popular areas. In fact, if you look at their addresses, Sunset Boulevard and Beverly Boulevard. So a lot of traffic going by there to help with brand awareness. We see that the Ohio location will be the only new one. It was not one acquired by the Chipotle divestment. On BBBop.com, they are actually saying that they're interested in hiring at these locations, both the new and opening locations. And overall, you see that this company is growing a bit fast, Trent, but it looks as though they do have a product mix that does differentiate themselves from other operators here in the U.S. Yeah, so we'll talk about some of these differentiators here in a moment. The timeline for their growth should be completed, or at least this phase of their growth should be completed by the end of this summer, exactly doubling their previous location count of 14 and this is different from most fast casuals. We obviously knew that they bought out the former shop house locations, but typically for fast casual restaurants, restaurants will be in development for months or even years before they open up. And here, BB Bop is able to execute on a much quicker timeline. 
in terms of what you can expect to see at a BB Bop, because it is a relatively new or a new-ish fast casual concept in terms of expansion, customers will see the same customizable options for their dishes as with their other existing locations for BB Bop, and more importantly, as they saw with Shop House, rice blends such as black and white rice and even purple rice, which serves as a major differentiator for them, and protein varieties, including organic tofu, as well as different Korean and Thai sauces, are all available, adding to that optionality for customers. Salad bowls are also available, like with Chipotle, also similar to Chipotle and other mainstream fast casual places like Panera. They are big on using no artificial dyes. They also market the freshness of their ingredients, and you can copy and paste that Control-C, Control-V to just about every other fast casual chain, but certainly that is something BB Bop is very clear and transparent about. They have a growing connection on social media. In particular, they do a great job of leveraging Instagram, perhaps better than many other fast casual chains that we see in such a way that highlights the freshness of their food. They're trying to push their well-being tagline across social media. The idea that a healthy life leads to a life of contentment, at least according to them. Not entirely sure about that, but it's an interesting attempt at a tagline there. Their website does offer online ordering at most of their locations, but the online ordering system we think could use a little bit of ironing out. In fact, I was on their online ordering system right before recording. On the desktop, it works really well. On the cell phone, doesn't work so well. You have to answer a number of prompts one after another, and it takes about 10 minutes to complete an order on your phone where, of course, that wouldn't be that long with other phone apps and other restaurant websites on mobile. The owner of BB Bop, Charlie Shin, says their offerings have more of an American twist, so not entirely Asian in terms of cultural while sticking to the traditional recipes. The American twist he might be referring to in this case is that flexibility or optionality to kind of substitute in different ingredients. And again, this is where they put themselves apart. In addition to that purple rice we talked about, you can get bean sprouts or warm black beans in a bowl, for example. Every type of vegetable, including daikon radish, which is one of my personal favorites and a number of different sauces that you can mix and match. In that regard, in that optionality, it's very much like a Mongolian grill in terms of being able to put your own options together and have it made for you there. Only in this circumstance, not as much of a sit-down restaurant. It's a lot quicker in terms of progression and throughput in the restaurant. Charlie Shin wants to leverage his fast, casual, and QSR experience in order to make this restaurant a long-term success. He's also taken part in the Charlie's Philly Steaks franchise. He started BB Bop while he was a student at Ohio State. When it's all said and done, they're going to have 28 locations after this expansion at the end of summer. And from recent statements, it's pretty easy to see why management feels like they have a good format to where they can potentially grow further. However, no new markets have been mentioned. We'll keep an eye on this story for the next year to see if BB Bop continues to develop. Well, we move on to our final story, and for this, we go to the orchard industry. A series of late freezes in the south means a potential peach crop shortage that could impact peach dynamics 
east of the Rockies. We kind of went deep into the research on this story. We felt like some of the stories on the other news outlets might have either missed things or been short-sighted as far as the actual impacts of some of these peach crop shortages in the southeastern United States might actually have on the overall peach industry. And we begin with, first, what happened to cause this peach shortage? Well, a late freeze in Alabama and Georgia caught trees right as they were blooming in the spring. And it seems to have significantly hampered the crops in those states. Peaches can be affected by two types of freezes. First, a below 10 degrees Fahrenheit freeze in dormancy. Midwinter will kill off many of the forming flower buds for most orchards. This type of freeze hit the orchards in Kansas and northern Oklahoma this year, in fact. Second, a freeze below around 26 or 27 degrees Fahrenheit while trees are blooming or preparing to bloom will render the pollen useless. Extension agents in Alabama said the mild winter made the effects of the late freeze that much more dramatic. A mild winter, especially one with plentiful sunshine, and a late winter will cause trees to begin blooming earlier than normal. Additionally, most peaches grown in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina are not low-chill varieties, meaning they have a certain amount of time under 45 degrees to produce flower buds the next year. If requirement is not met around 800 to 850 hours, sporadic or early or non-existent blooming will occur. Some farms in this area actually had blooms as early as mid-February, so not a lot of good news here. A drought in 2016 also helped to stress the trees further to ensure no fruit production. According to the Insurance Journal, farmers in Georgia originally thought the crop could be largely salvaged in some cases as much as by 70%. However, this is appearing to be incorrect. Their predictions are a little bit off here. Now it appears as though 80% of Georgia peach crop will be lost, according to Gary Black, the Georgia Agriculture Commissioner. This is a number reporting 85%. In South Carolina and overall you can see that according to Alabama.com the number is around 70 to 90 percent in that state so not a lot of good numbers coming by the way of the south and southeast a report released by the Alabama Cooperative Extension System actually corroborates these numbers so a lot of harmful effects and what could these impacts be throughout the industry and for the individual farmers. Well, in terms of the farmers, obviously, it could be harmful to them, but potentially more harmful to insurance companies as most of these farmers have crops insured for circumstances like this. The economic impact there in the state, though, which relies on peaches a lot in terms of not only exports, but also as a form of what is called agritourism, is expected to be around $300 million, at least just for farmers in Georgia. And this is between the loss of the peach crop And also the blueberry crop, according to the AP, it's odd, I think, that their blueberries took a hit since blueberries usually bloom a few weeks after peaches. Blueberries are considered for farmers a strong hedge crop against early freezes in much the same way that blackberries are. The impact reaches beyond just this year, too. Because farmers in this area throughout Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina are even reporting tree loss of 10 to 20%. So 10 to 20% of certain farmers' trees total have died. And since peach trees often require 5 to 10 years to bear full crops, 
this could potentially impact southeastern peaches for a long time. The director of the Chilton Research and Extension Center, Jim Pitts, said to a media outlet in that area that some farmers are now moving to low-chill varieties for their replants of these trees to try and re-replenish their orchards. Given the increased trends of warm winters, they're switching to varieties that only require 400 or 500 hours beneath 45 degrees Fahrenheit to bear a crop the next year. Georgia and Alabama sources have suggested that no crop will be exported outside their states this year, if any, very little. And we're hearing from Wisconsin that there are sightings of Georgia peaches up there, but not very many. So very few and far between in terms of exports. So one would think then that it could affect overall peach prices east of the Rockies. West of the Rockies, they get sufficient number of peaches from California, which is actually the leader in terms of peach production in the U.S. Washington, Colorado, also states with major peach producers. However, east of the Rockies, other states are actually picking up the slack. New Jersey is one such state with both a massive crop there this year and one that's coming ripe a little bit earlier than normal. They're in fact mentioning kickstarting their promotional program in early July. We've mentioned that term before on this show, but for those new to the podcast, promotional programs are code in the produce industry for not only increased store marketing and social media marketing, but also promotional pricing well below yearly averages. So the 12-month average for a particular product. For New Jersey, this does include, of course, the social media push, but also sending out placards to grocers advertising the arrival of Jersey peaches. This suggests that at the very least, Northeast and Mid-Atlantic grocery customers will not be affected price-wise too greatly by the lack of Georgia peaches and South Carolina peaches coming north. Jerry Freakon of the New Jersey Peach Promotion Council indicated that their marketing efforts may actually benefit from the lack of a Georgia crop since usually Jersey peaches come in following an influx of Georgia peaches, meaning consumers are sometimes perhaps tired of that particular fruit by the time the Jersey peaches come in. Here, they're pretty much the first ones to market, and so they're basically following up a series of peaches from potentially northern Florida or Texas, where they actually have a little bit more name recognition in those stores on the East Coast than some of those other peaches that they've been getting or potentially some Chilean peaches there. Another state seeing record harvest is Arkansas. In Johnson County, Arkansas, peach farmer Mark Morgan said that the combination of a near-perfect crop for him and crop failures elsewhere in the southeast has opened up business from both pick-your-own customers and wholesale buyers. And then we look up north in the upper Midwest, and according to the Michigan State University Extension Office, most growers in Michigan, another one of the major peach-producing states, are seeing a good crop in development This crop won't come ripe for several weeks, however, because it is colder, longer up there. West Michigan is a little bit light in terms of the peach crop, but eastern Michigan is robust enough to make up for that. At least that's what the extension office up there says. And Oklahoma's crop, even though Layton mentioned the freezes, deep freezes in northern Oklahoma, most of Oklahoma's crop in the eastern part of the state is relatively intact, too. Overall, we see that peach prices, both average and promotional, remain fairly steady across the country despite these problems with production. Only increases are, in fact, in the southeast. Promotional prices in grocers throughout the Midwest and Texas appear to still be around 79 to 99 cents per pound. We should remember that California still produces the most peaches in the United States, 
by pound. 49% of the overall U.S. production is in California. South Carolina and Georgia combined produce less than one-fifth the number of peaches California does on a yearly basis. So for Georgia really being a peach state that doesn't come out in the facts when you look at the numbers overall, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Washington, and Colorado are all next in line as far as peach production is concerned. Also note that in 2013, blueberries took over peaches as the most valuable crop in Georgia although they're having crop issues there as well. The lesson learned overall for production and fruit production inside the United States is diversity of crops helps in non-traditional production, both in the variety of a particular fruit and attempting to grow multiple fruits. It kind of hedges their bet against a bad crop year. Granted, they do get insurance money a lot of times for this happening, but still it is hard to maintain production continuity when unforeseen weather effects come into play. Insurance payments are often delayed. You have to fight with insurance companies. And this in the immediate term or in the midterm hurts cash flow, which is important for paying back bank loans and those types of things to keep production going and healthy crops to maintain. But overall, you see that this industry is very interesting and it's extremely complex, especially when you are competing with a lot of other states. And with that, we'll be looking to see how the peach industry plays out over the next year after this. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate. Although this week, it's more what we drank as each Leighton and I tried something that's new to the world of food or at least new to us over the last week. And Leighton's here to give his review of one particular beverage that is back on store shelves after a hiatus. Yeah, this is a story that we highlighted not too long ago as the popular and somewhat controversial 1990s era beverage Zima was back on store shelves. And I decided to go ahead and buy a six pack, which the price point was around the $9 price point that we had discussed a few weeks ago. But overall, I don't really talk about the consumption of alcohol because I don't consume alcohol. But after having done that story, I remembered having drank that drink once and you can see that it was very popular because of its citrus flavor and its sweet flavor. It appealed to a different demographic and it really started to get my taste buds going. So I went in, bought a six pack. I drank two bottles and Trent, I really have to tell you that it didn't really strike me as something that I would try again. Overall, you can see that after about one beverage, you can start to really see that citrus flavor kick in. So that was nice, but alcohol consumption gives me headaches. So this is one of the reasons why I don't consume either beer or liquor. But Zima, as you can see, has really been popular throughout social media as of late, really trying to hype the fact that they were prominent in the 1990s. But all the local liquor stores by me actually still serve the drink. It is for that limited time promotion surrounding the July 4th weekend. So I'm sure we'll be seeing production start to taper off as the parent company Miller Coors has really made it very clear that this is for a limited time. I tried something out that potentially I would regard as a little bit better than Zima. I was out in Colorado several weeks ago. Listeners of the podcast will remember that. While I was out there, I picked up a six-pack of Elevation Brewing's Wave Wheel Wit. Elevation Brewing is based out of Poncha Springs, Colorado, which is near Salida, Colorado. Salida, an absolutely gorgeous town if you get a chance to visit Highly recommend it. Poncha Springs is a smaller town, more of not necessarily resort town, but a summer vacation town. Certainly lots of outdoor things to do. 
And this wave wheel went, although not necessarily full-bodied, I think it's something that's not intended to be entirely full-bodied. It was nice, cloudy, as a wit should be. And I think it was a little bit better balanced with the hops and the malt than most of your commercial wits will be something like a blue moon or like a shock top. So I enjoyed it. It was very refreshing for summertime, certainly. And if you have a chance to pick up a six-pack, as they aren't distributed too far outside of that Poncha Springs area, I highly recommend it. They have other offerings as well that I found just as palatable, but this being summer, it seemed like a good time to review a wit. Well, for Leighton, I'm Trent. That'll do it for this edition of the Food Focus podcast. Check us out on Twitter at the Food Focus. Also, be sure and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And of course, leave us a review if you enjoy the podcast. We'll be back with Retail Focus later during this holiday week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 